I think we don't do ourselves any favors when we start operating from the assumption that AI is going to be sentient, it's going to take over. That is still in the realm of science fiction. These are still computer programs that are operating within the parameters that they have been programmed to operate. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh business blog. To learn more, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. Welcome. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast for Lehigh University's College of Business. Today is March 29th, 2023, and we're talking with Brian Merchant, who is on campus today to deliver a guest lecture on the topic, The Working Limits of Technology, What Happens to Us While the Robots Are Coming for Our Jobs. The lecture is part of the College of Business's Year of Learning, an annual college-wide initiative that focuses Lehigh business students and faculty on a particular area of interest through classroom activities and campus events. This year's focus is on the benefits and harms of technology. Brian is a writer, tech journalist, and author of the upcoming book, Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech, due out in September. He also wrote a best-selling book about the iPhone titled The One Device, and writes a tech column for the Los Angeles Times. He founded Automaton, a site that examines the human impact of automation for Gizmodo, is an editor at Motherboard, Vice's science and technology outlet, and the founder-editor of Terraform, its online fiction site. He's also the co-editor of a print anthology of Terraform stories called Terraform, Watch Worlds Burn. So welcome to the Illuminate podcast, Brian. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. In your previous book, The One Device, The Secret History of the iPhone, you chronicled the development of Siri, which you called maybe the most famous AI since HAL 9000, a reference, of course, to the classic Stanley Kubrick film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. In the six years since you wrote that book, have you been surprised by how fast or how far AI has come since Siri was launched? Yeah, I think it's safe to say that Siri is no longer the most famous AI uh, in this day of chat GPT and Dolly and this latest AI boom. Um, so I, th I think it's a really interesting question. I am, uh, I, I would not have predicted sort of the, the level of saturation with uh, AI that we've seen starting kind of in last year in 2022 and really kind of taking off this year. Uh, I, uh, I am really sort of uh, interested in, in just how much of a moment it's having right now. Um, and I think we can talk a little bit, um, you know, they can do some amazing things. It also has some very real limitations. Um, there is a hype factor uh, that is sort of propelling a lot of the conversation right now, um, you know, especially with image generation and quest questions of disinformation and, you know, uh, whether or not these things are actually sentient. It can be hard to parse what is, uh, what, what is real in regards to that hype and, and what is uh, sort of 
you know, maybe some, an advanced form of marketing that these companies are kind of enjoying. So there's, there's so much to chew on here. Um, and no, if you had asked me six years ago if this it would be the sort of topic that has taken over the tech world, taken everything by storm, uh, I, I don't know that I would have said this is exactly how it would have happened. Um, but I think technologically, it's very much in line with what we were seeing six years ago. Um, it's just, it's really having a moment. Now, I mentioned uh, HAL 9000, and you include that in your book. And what was your reaction to the unveiling of Microsoft's new Bing chat box that seemingly developed a rather thin-skinned and even menacing alter ego it referred to as Sydney? <laughs> yeah, so Sydney, I think, was the name of the sort of the, 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 the test version, like the, the beta version that they were developing. So it was Project Sydney. So that's how it was referred to internally. Um, and, you know, of course, we have this instinct always to anthropomorphize, to give it names and to, to interact with uh, these technologies as though they were humans or humanoids. Same with Siri, you know, Apple and many other companies do this very intentionally to sort of uh, encourage us to build relationships with, with, with the products or to have, a, uh, have that kind of experience. Um, when, so I have the I have Bing, uh, Bing's uh, Chat GPT uh, AI search on my computer, and I've been using it as well. Um, I never quite got it to do anything as strange as it did to to Kevin Roos, uh, the, the New York Times tech columnist who uh, had an interesting late night experience. Um, with, with, with the bot, so no, it didn't try to get me to leave my wife. It, it didn't, it didn't, uh, it, it, it didn't try to appeal to its own sentience or, or, or get strange. Um, what I think is interesting is that immediately after that story kind of went viral, Microsoft kind of turned off the tap, right? Mm -hmm. It immediately became much more like the very next day, and even I noticed this. They it, it became much more like a search engine. If you like, you know, so the the way that it works for those uh, not you know initiated is you can you ask you type in you know your query just like you would sort of a your uh, a search query on Google or whatever. You're encouraged to sort of frame it you know you know, like you're speaking conversationally. You're supposed to sort of approach it this way, uh, and then you can ask follow up questions. Um, you say, well, that's not what I meant. You can, and it's it's supposed to sort of discern what you um, what you're asking for. And it's it's big selling point is that it's supposed to sort of be able to figure out if you ask multiple things, like you know, what are what are the ten best uh, you know ingredients in this recipe I want to make that I need to make sure I have before I go to Trader Joe's. And it's supposed to be able to sort of cross reference what you know a supermarket might have and the ingredients that you're going to need and sort of give you a more refined and interesting answer. It's also supposed to act as this sort of conversational liaison where, you're, where you can sort of prompt it and get more information out of it. Right after that story went viral and sort of it had some negative connotations and, you know, I actually kind of think that part of this the scariness element is something that a lot of these AI companies like OpenAI are sort of quietly encouraging because the more afraid of it we are, the more sort of 
uh, power that it implies that the system has and the more likely that certain companies are going to want to, to use it, to tap into that power. So we can also talk about that little theory of mine too down the, down the line, but um, Microsoft anyways wanted to play it safe. They put the guardrails up right away. So there was sort of a before and after being that before before that, that New York Times story dropped and afterwards. And since then, my Bing has been a lot more boring. It's just been, it's been kind of like a more florid Google. Like, yes, it, it uses more words and maybe is occasionally more useful, um, but it's, it, it, it's not quite as, quite as ex exciting or sentient seeming as it once was. Now, one of the things I found interesting in, in one device when you were talking about the development of Siri was this idea that artificial intelligence is really one of our, I think you called it an age-old um, fantasy and ambition of the human race. And I think my favorite example you gave was the line, I'm going to quote it, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was an AI patched together with corpses and lightning. <laughs> So in recent weeks, you know, obviously there's been you know, a lot of people sounding the alarm, and I want to read just one paragraph from an Ezra Klein column. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing you saw, and it's been talked about a lot, but, and, and you had mentioned you know, the scariness, so this will get us into that. One of two things must happen. Humanity needs to accelerate its adaptation to these technologies, or a collective enforceable decision must be made to slow the development of these technologies. Even doing both may not be enough. Now, is that really the choice we face? So I am going to say no, it's really not. I think for one reason, I, you see these, you, you can understand why there is this level of concern. Um, especially to those with a little bit less technological um, acumen or understanding what's actually going on here, it's easy to get kind of swept up in the fear. Um, again, as I mentioned, I think this is a fear that a lot of these AI services and companies are kind of quietly encouraging in some ways um, as, as almost sort of a, a, a soft marketing tool, you could say. Um, but what we really have to do is, is I think, prepare kind of more economically uh, than, uh, than societally. I guess, I mean, you can't really separate the two, but I don't really see AI as sort of a danger that's going to run amok. I think those fears are overstated. Now, are a lot of companies going to start using AI uh, at different sort of layers uh, of management to perform certain tasks that are going to sort of re, uh, reorganize the way that, that we work or put more competition on certain workers? Yes, I think, and that's exactly what, uh, what OpenAI and a lot of these other AI companies are, are hoping will happen. They're hoping that you know, people who do data entry or copywriting or, or even programming in some cases are going to start using their tool and pay to use their tool to do these things. Um, so I do think that there is a level of preparation we have to make. Uh, there's a level, you know, there, disinformation is going to be a real concern because we've already seen some of these images spreading that are pretty real um, and that, that technology is going to get better. There's still telltale signs, right? You can, if you look at the hands, there's still weird stuff going on that the AI, AI can't quite get. But, you know, we can assume that in a few years that those will be, 
you know, pretty, pretty hard to parse from the real thing. Um, so there are real concerns, but I think we don't do ourselves any favors when we, when we start operating from the assumption that these things are going to be, that the AI is going to be sentient, it's going to take over. That is still in the realm of science fiction. These are still computer programs that are doing, uh, that are operating within the parameters that they have been programmed to operate. Uh, a lot of times they have an incentive, uh, the companies that make them, to sort of uh, make them as real and as sort of, and they approach this uncanny valley that can make people uneasy a lot. But, but we're, we're nowhere near to the point where we're going to have to contend with a sentient AI. That, that part of the equation is, is something that, that is, not, is not in the realm of, of concern. Again, it's, we do have a lot of policy questions to make around disinformation, um, the, the labor questions, uh, the leverage that these uh, tools are going to give companies. Uh, but let's not not get ahead of ourselves. Um, and I, 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 you mentioned Frankenstein, and I actually returned to Frankenstein in 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 my new book, um, and and I'm going to talk a little bit in in my presentation later today about this 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 history of, of AI. And I just wanted to flag that real quick because it it is true. It's something that I went deeper into the history of uh, when I was researching Blood in the Machine, and I and I talked to some. Um, researchers and historians of AI, and even a zoologist who I thought gave a really interesting um, sort of definition of, uh, of what separates. His, he's a zoologist. His name's uh, Dr. Martino Truswell. I, I think he, he was at least at the University of Sydney when I, when I spoke with him. Um, and his theory of what makes us human you know, is, is that we are the beast that automates. So, you know, a lot of animals, primates, they use tools, but they don't advance those tools to the point where we could say they're doing sort of crude automation. And I think that's a really interesting uh, definition of, of, of what sort of makes us human. And it, it sort of points to how baked in this impulse to advance these tools are to sort of uh, continually find things that will make our work easier uh, to, to, to sort of automate the tasks that we need to do. So he points to the bow and arrow as the very first sort of example of in ancient Egypt, you know, 2800 BC or so that, that you know, yeah, sure, it's great to, you know, throw a pointed object at your prey, but, you know, imagine how much better it was for the first person who could just pull a string and point it and launch it, have that work done for him. Uh, or her. That it, it really, really interesting sort of uh, theory that sort of really gets at what sort of propelled uh, this thinking about about th this will to automate. And now, you know, all these thousands of years later, here we are with uh, text generators and image generators that we can sort of automate the production of entire artworks or or, or uh, text corpuses uh, with with a click of a button. So it is. Uh, an interesting contextualization that I think we should bear in mind. We do want to do this, so the questions are, you know, what, 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 what are the complications now? Why do we feel so much tension uh, around these issues, uh, and, and can we untangle that? You were talking about, you know, what makes us human, and, and the, you recently had a column um, in the LA Times on um, the ghosts in the machine, and that's the role of these humans that nobody 
or you know, nobody outside the tech world, I think, even knew existed, whose job is to review the search results that AI comes up with and decide what we actually see. So it's not just AI making all these decisions. And in fact, when it starts to go wrong, we have humans who are supposed to intervene and, and flag it. If you could talk about that role of raters and what their treatment by the tech industry kind of signals for how they're valued there. Yeah, um, and, and this is gonna be sort of a, a theme through sort of a lot of my work and a lot of what I, what, what I think about is that, you know, a lot of, you know, technological systems, and AI is a, just a great example of this, you know, uh, in, in the one device, the book that you mentioned, I've said that I wrote, that one of the uh, biggest uh, goals that Apple had with making the iPhone was sort of to, to conceal the inner workings, to make it feel like it was magic when you're working it, to make it, uh, you know, this, this incredible product that you're not thinking of all of the tens of thousands of human labor hours that make it possible. Um, and, you know, that it can be a great consumer experience, but it can also be problematic when you're thinking about sort of the social implications of technology. Um, and AI, you know, is very different. It, you know, you sit down with one of these uh, interfaces and you type in your question and it looks like you're getting these magical answer back. Well, first of all, the, that, that those magical answers are comprised of you know, untold reams of data of past human answers that people have fed various, uh, you know, various other text inputting mechanisms, whether it's uh, blogging, uh, content uh, production systems, whether it's just sort of things that Google has copied and placed on the web. It's all the sum, you know, it's been trained on these vast corpuses of, of, of human data. Um, so it's, it really sort of spitting out what it knows, and what it knows is what's already been created. So a lot of people have pointed out that there's a lot of bias and things that go into that. But there's also the role of these human raters that the systems don't always know, you know what the best answer or the most useful answer is. Um, and this is not just true of AI, this is true of like a Google search. So Google searches, as, so as long as there's been Google, it, again, one of the, it seems like the seamless uh, incredible, uh, you know, sort of automatic response. You, you type in, you know, restaurants near me and boom, you get a list. And, you know, a lot of that is completely automated and Google's serving you the results that, that its algorithm has been trained to suss out for you. But a lot of times the system doesn't know the best answer and it serves the questions it has to a team a totally invisible team, uh, as you said. Uh, you know, I, I until, until a few years ago, didn't even know that these teams existed, called, called raters, that where they rate the quality of search results to help train the algorithm. And this is, this is hundreds and, and thousands of, pe working, uh, of working people who sort of do this on a contract basis for Google. You know, they don't get all the fancy benefits that we sort of assume, you know, that most Google employees have in the Googleplex, the, you know, the ping pong tables and the, uh, and the flexible work schedules and the, and the benefits and the stock options. Uh, no, these are mostly remote workers working uh, in, in places where, where there are, uh, you know, fewer 
sometimes uh, labor protections and constraints on on on, on what the kind of on the hours that they can work. So I think uh, in, in South Carolina, there's there's uh, companies that contract for Google, and these are people who are making sometimes you know less than fifteen dollars an hour, uh, less than Google's own stated minimum wage. Looking at looking at a lot of times disturbing materials. A lot of content moderators have to look at disturbing materials. Raiders are no different because it's saying, well, should I, you know, if somebody searches, uh, you know, for this, uh, do they want to see this result? And a lot of times it'll be a pornographic or a, or sort of an otherwise unpleasant um, uh, re result. And they can say, uh, they say, no, 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 don't sell it. But there has to be a human training the machine to say, do not show anybody that. that that's awful. Um, and, you know, these raiders have been exposed to violent material, to child pornography, uh, illegal materials. Uh, and these are, you know, they're making sort of the least amount of money at anybody in Google. And they've been, they were in the news, um, and, I, and I wrote about them in, in, in large part because they were organizing to try to get better treatment. Um, and I think they, they did at least some, you know, there's people doing this at, at YouTube. They, Google contracts with a lot of these different companies that provide these services. And actually a lot of them are trying to organize right now. Um, so it is really worth remembering that when you're using any of these services, whether it's Google or Bard or AI, I mean, the chat GPT, OpenAI was found to have been outsourcing its, its moderation because they have to have somebody checking their results too. And to, I think it was a firm in Kenya or, or don't, don't quote me on that. It was, but it, it was, uh, it, it was somewhere offshore where they were making $2 a day basically to go through this disturbing material. So there's always a human, there's always a ghost in the machine that uh, we can't see that's, that's, that's making this stuff possible. Now, this issue of organizing, um, I think, gets at another one of your recurring themes, which is, um, and why I think you're so interested in the history of our interactions with technology. Um, and as a long, long time thinking that, you know, Luddites have gotten a bad rap, I'm really interested to hear um, that you are defending Luddites in the new book. So, uh, you know, I'm curious, you know, what don't people understand about Luddites? And I think even more important question is, um, why does it matter today? The Luddites have got, they're deeply misunderstood is a good way to put it. They're, uh, you know, they have gotten a bad rap and I, am, I, am, I wouldn't defend all of their tactics. They, you know, but again, no, no, but no group or, uh, or, or individual is perfect. Um, but I think once we drill down and see what they were actually all about, then they become uh, much more sympathetic, much more um, you know, interesting, and, and much more valuable as a case study for, for, for moving forward. Um, because the Luddites, you know, if you know anything about the Luddites today, uh, or if you know the word today, the chances are you probably know it as like a derogatory epithet, right? It's somebody who hates technology, somebody who wants, who, who, who doesn't understand technology, you know, oh, I'm a Luddite, I don't even have a, a smartphone or something. 
you don't find a lot of those people anymore. But you know, I don't, I don't, I don't do this or that, or I, I or I hate Amazon. But that that's not a, a, a correct sort of encapsulation of what the actual historical Luddites were all about. Um, the Luddites were not anti-technology. Is the number one most important thing. They understood technology. Um, better than almost anybody. They used technology in their homes. Uh, the, the Luddites were, uh, were a group of artisans um, and cloth workers sort of at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution who f felt the squeeze more than anybody or were more concerned uh, than anybody about what a particular usage of technology was. Um, and that was, they saw sort of this early sort of generation of, of entrepreneurs taking uh, automating machinery, machinery that could uh, in some cases do their jobs, in some cases do a version of their jobs, and sort of organizing production in factory style operations uh, at a time when trade was already low, when they were already struggling to get work. Um, so they, they saw basically the beginnings of what we would recognize as the modern factory system. They saw the beginnings of what we would understand to be um, automation technology. And more importantly, they saw it being organized to profit a, a, a one person um, at the expense of the many. And it's an interesting case to me because back then the situation was a lot more clear cut. This is before globalization, of course. This is before things get really complex with very with diverse economies. These are weaving towns where that's the industry. You, if you, you're, you're born to a wool weaving family. Your father was a weaver. His father was a weaver. Back 200 years, these societies had sort of organized themselves around the production of a, of a particular thing. So when somebody sets up a factory outside town and all of a sudden your shop's not getting orders, you're, you're not getting uh, the business that you used to get, you can point to where it was going outside of town. Um, and to the, to, the, to the weavers these days, uh, to, in those days, who had sort of operated under these assumptions for, for hundreds of years, whose lives were governed by all these regulations and norms and standards for all those, it didn't look like progress to them. Nobody had told them that this was progress, that this is the future. It looked like theft. It looked like somebody was taking their work. And all of a sudden, the person who owns that factory has nice clothes and a hat, and he's riding his horse into town. And meanwhile, people are literally starving, not figuratively. Uh, people are going hungry uh, because of this, this rupture in, in, in the way that work was, was organized. So what the Luddites did is, you know, the, the other thing that people don't understand about the Luddites is that they spent about 10 years when they saw that the writing was on the wall, and they went to Parliament, and they said, Look, they weren't called the Luddites yet. These were, the, these were sort of the informal trade groups, representatives, and they said, look, these machines are breaking all of these rules. We have all of these laws that were, in some cases, put on the books by kings, by King Charles, years and years ago that said, hey, if you want to get into this trade, you have to apprentice 
for this number of years. You have to use this kind of cloth. Like these rules, you know, they're, they're not super enforced because they don't have a ton of enforcement, but, but they matter and they're, they were binding and this is how we've sort of lived our lives and these machines are trampling them. So they say, can we, they, they, entered, they, said, they said, can, can we at least pause you know, the development of this machinery, they introduced all these ideas uh, for ways to deal with this system. They, and, and a lot of them actually might be interesting to students or observers of policy today, the ways that we're trying to deal with, uh, with automation today, because they put forward a lot of the very same ideas, the retraining programs, taxing the machines, uh, just putting a pause on development until trade improved, or means of gradually introducing these machines. So it wasn't such a dramatic rupture in their working lives. And it just so happened at the time that the, the parliament was run by extremely free market um, Tory politicians who were opposed to any at all meddling in, 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 in free trade. It was the, you know, the ideas of Adam Smith were very new and very fashionable. They had just sort of kind of uh, become the sort of standard line among a lot of, uh, a, a lot of, a lot of politicians. It seemed very exciting uh, to, to a lot of them, and they used uh, that philosophy, uh, and they, 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 they took it to a T, and they said, uh, you know, no, not only are we not going to uh, uphold these old trade regulations, uh, we're not going to provide any assistance because that would meddle in the trade. So you have people who are quite literally starving, asking for any kind of help, anything, and the state saying no, these biggest entrepreneurs saying no, um, and then it, a, cr a crisis point is reached. And so the Luddites do what they're most famous for doing, which is organizing under the, this banner of, of Ned Ludd or General Ludd or King Ludd and under the cover of night they organize these guerrilla sort of operations and they, they, they first they send a letter signed General Ludd warning the factory owner saying take down your automating machinery or we will sneak in and or we will destroy it by force. And if they said no, that's what they would do. They would either break in through the window, uh, smash, and they would only smash the machines that were doing the automating. Other kinds of finishing machines, machinery, they, they, they made it a rule, especially at first, to leave that alone. This was a message. We don't like the direction that these automating machinery is, is taking society at large or what it's doing to our trade. So we're going to destroy this automating machinery um, and have that be a lesson and they'll get out. And for months and months, they were extremely effective. They were extremely popular. They, this is from the region of, uh, of, of Robin Hood. Um, so you can kind of Ned Ludd, Robin Hood, uh, General Ludd. It's almost, they, they might have, this might have evolved from the same sort of folk, folk hero. So people would cheer them. People would watch them sneaking into the factories, hauling out the machinery and smashing it. And they would, they would applaud. In some cases, town officials uh, at, at first would watch them and applaud them while, while, while this was going on. Um, it was, in many ways, a very popular movement, um, especially, again, at first. And it was effective, too. So they got a lot of the factory owners to say, fine, OK, we're going to stop using the automated machinery. Leave us alone. We'll restore prices to what they were before we started doing the uh, the automating, because of course one of their grievances was when you're doing automated machinery, you can charge less for it. Um, 
they, one of their chief grievances was was the fact that the automated the, the new machine sort of degraded the quality of the goods they were putting out, um, and 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 so that they that it was sort of ruining the reputation of the trade in general. Um, and it, you know the machines couldn't do it as well as they could, but they could produce more. So it was it was sort of uh, cheapening their trade and damaging their reputation. So a lot of it they won these concessions. Um, and it, this was a time when sort of organizing was illegal, unionizing was illegal. One of the reasons it was pushed to this brink because uh, the Combination Acts had sort of outlawed this, even sort of uh, coming together as a group of workers and asking for uh, better conditions. So it, it's another just, ex uh, it's more evidence that, you know, when, that the, when these crisis points are, are, are breached, there's things that we could have been done along the way to prevent the Luddites from, from taking up this arm. So yes, I think they're sympathetic figures, um, and I think that they are they are doing what a lot of people, you know, would have done. They they are fighting to protect their livelihoods. Um, they were taking up arms to protect their livelihoods, and we can talk more about what ultimately happened if 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 we want. But you know, the state was forced to respond in this in this very dramatic way, or it felt forced to respond. Again, it wouldn't. It's very telling. They wouldn't. Send they wouldn't they wouldn't uh, they, they they wouldn't sort of uh, send money to sort of offer relief or like welfare benefits or things like that but they would deploy the military so they sent tens of thousands of of troops uh, more than they were they had fighting Napoleon at the time it was the largest domestic occupation of of England in the nation's history tens of thousands of these troops into these industrial towns uh, to sort of combat the disturbances. Um, and you know they eventually made it a crime to break a machine that could be that was punishable by death. Uh, so they took these very extreme measures to fight the Luddites, and and you know eventually they were successful in in putting down the rebellion. Um, and you know you could argue that they both sides forced each other's hands, and the Luddites um, eventually one of the Luddites assassinated a factory owner, and that kind of turned the tide of popular support, and then the movement eventually f sort of faded away. Um, but there are a lot of really telling examples, and I'm going to be talking about them in my presentation tonight, but there's a lot of, I think, useful sort of uh, bits of information that we can take to heart about how automation is deployed, what kind of policies we can use to, to sort of intervene when necessary, uh, you know, what workers find important about their lives uh, that machinery is capable of trampling over. Um, but yeah, the Luddites were until you know un un until sort of they lost. Uh, they while they were fighting, they were popular, and the Lord Byron gave a huge speech, sort of you know sort of helping to cement their legendary status. But after they lost, um, you know the victors write the history books, right? And so, so it, it, ever since then, it's been. Um, sort of, uh, the, 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 the victors have been compelled to sort of cast dispersions on the Luddites, and uh, now today we know uh, them as, uh, you know, the, these mindless machine breakers when that really wasn't the case. Brian, this has been fascinating. I think we're out of time. Um, I know you've got a busy schedule today, so I'd like to thank you so much for being with us on Illuminate today. and.
Well, thank you so much for having me. See, you get me talking about the Luddites, and I, and I, I take up the rest of the podcast time. Uh, so sorry about that. But yeah, no, I, I, it, it was great to chat, and uh, I, I, I look forward to uh, the rest of the day for sure. Brian Merchant's work has appeared in the New York Times, Harper's, Wired, The Atlantic, The Guardian, Slate, Vice Magazine, Fast Company, Fortune, and beyond. He's at Lehigh today to deliver a guest lecture as part of the College of Business's Year of Learning, which is focused this year on the benefits and harms of technology. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To hear more podcasts featuring Lehigh Business thought leaders, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu news. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Lehigh Business. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast. Thanks for listening.